Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests, expert insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. On today's episode, our special guest is Secretary Bill Northey, who's CEO of Agribusiness Association of Iowa and the former Iowa Secretary of Agriculture and Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation for the United States Department of Agriculture. Welcome to the show, Bill. Great to be with you, David. So, as I said, Bill has a long tenure in agriculture and in ag leadership and has spent his career as an advocate for the ag industry. Today, Bill's going to share with us his background in agriculture and in public service, including some of his memorable experiences and some of the biggest challenges he've had along the way. And we're going to discuss his current role at the Agribusiness Association of Iowa and what trends he anticipates are going to shape the future of agriculture. So, let's get started. Well, so first of all, again, appreciate you being on the show. Known you for a number of years, but I guess for our for our listeners, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Well, great to be with you, David. I appreciate it, and good to see you and look forward to the conversation. So I'm a farm kid from Northwest Iowa. Uh, went off to Iowa State to farm or to, uh, to to study agricultural business, went back and started farming with my grandfather on my dad's side, and then early on got involved in association activities, and, uh, and that took me through a series of different roles through the years, um, but still a farm kid at heart. <laughs> and uh, I don't get a farm anymore uh, now day to day, but uh, certainly love agriculture, love farmers and all those folks that work with those farmers to make them successful. One of the things I was going to ask you about is, is you know, leadership and advocacy in agriculture is such an important task and, and having those people willing to step up and serve. And as we said in the outset, you've had a long experience and tenure in that. Still, a, uh, certainly a farmer at heart, but it takes a special breed to to assume those leadership roles. Curious, what kind of led you to go down that path in service of agriculture? You know, it wasn't because I was very strategic when I was 20 <laughs> years old and I figured this out. Um, I had a grandfather on my mom's side who was president of Iowa Farm Bureau, and so he uh, certainly demonstrated that advocacy piece, that engagement piece, that I'd say a lack of fear of government, too, peace. (laughs) You know, government's awful important, but it really works better when people participate and engage and and advocate in government for for farmers or for agribusinesses. And so he demonstrated that. My dad as well wasn't fearful of government. He engaged with political folks. And so I think, thankfully, I grew up without a lack of understanding about government or some kind of fear of it. And I, I run into folks right now that haven't had reason to be, to interact with government. It seems bigger than something that you mm. can participate in. And so sure. um, that was really helpful as well as early on, uh, I went on the Iowa Corn Growers Board through a 
a series of stumbles back in uh, in my early 20s and mid-20s, and it was just a wonderful experience. Uh, and obviously, there you've got to advocate back in the day for ethanol or for water quality policy or other things like that. And so very naturally, I got around a lot of folks that were involved either as elected officials or as folks that were working for government and realizing that they just want to know how they can help too. And it became something that uh, I wasn't fearful of, that I thought was very rewarding to be able to engage with. And so I, I didn't go through what some people go through in not being comfortable doing that. And that led me to the extent that I eventually ran for public office myself and was willing to stand in a, an appointed role as well, in part because I'd been around and could see that government matters a lot. But in our system, it takes participation by everyone else to make sure that government's doing less of the wrong things and more of the right things. And, uh, and it was very, it's been a re- very rewarding career for me. Just a little sidebar, you mentioned your grandfather, and so by frame of reference, that would be Howard, right? That's right, Howard Hill. Howard Hill. Yep. Obviously, a little tied to our company because Howard farmed for a number of years, just probably two or three miles from uh, what we call the Stein Farm. So a, a pillar within Farm Bureau. Right? right, and pillar within that community, so well known to to all. But that's that's a neat story, and I appreciate sharing that. And I I remember time, David, back when I'd be visiting Grandpa on the farm, and Harry had been out fishing in <laughs> one of the ponds nearby, and came to their back porch and would clean some fish and give them some fish fillets, okay. and <laughs> and uh, and Grandpa would say, "This is a really great guy who's doing really interesting stuff in seed and oh, other cool. things," and they were just neighbors and they really enjoyed each other's company and to learn and ask questions and see what was going on. Never business partners themselves, but just great neighbors and really certainly important to each other in in the way that life developed. That's that's fantastic. And Hills Pond is still a a, a reference point and a landmark to all of us who are local to the area. So curious, I you know you mentioned that, that there probably wasn't a, a a deliberate track here for you. You know, one of the things we talk about in agriculture today is, is there's I think a concern that there's I don't want to call it a lack of calling, but you know, who's who's stepping up and so I'm curious as to your thought on that, as now working for an association, your time in USDA, and then, of, of course, as Secretary of Agriculture, is that getting harder to find, or uh, or is it just sort of a matter of perspective? You know, I, it probably is. Of course, the pool of folks that were farming that could be involved yeah. um, was larger back in the day. Probably the kinds of folks that were in agribusiness, there were maybe more folks too, because we're all able to get more done than yeah. than those that were in generations before us. But I still think that there's a good pool of folks out there to advocate and engage. It's just a very noisy political environment out there too. You know, there's <laughs> a true. lot of other things and government's involved in a lot more things than it used to be involved in. And and it's challenging to break through. So I think the challenge is very real. Yeah, We even have, I don't know, now I'm going to sound like an old guy who used to be involved in <laughs> in a different time, you know, back in the day. Back in the day. But uh, certainly in, in a lot of my time advocating around agricultural policy, it wasn't, it, it wasn't a, a super partisan time. 
Uh, you didn't get pulled into some of the really challenging issues uh, that can be out there right now and divisive kinds of things. So it was a it was a very easy time to engage, and and I would say agriculture still is that, but still the political divisiveness discourages some people from getting involved. And and I think it certainly discourages some people from running for office. We would love to have them run for office. They go, oh, man, I, I don't know that I want some of the folks to dislike me just based on my political affiliation or how I stand on an issue that I don't think is as important as some of the other issues. And so I think we lose some of that participation compared to maybe what we had in the past. Sure. Willingness to to run that gauntlet, Mm -hmm. so to speak. That's right. So that leads me to another question I was going to ask you about, because obviously, you know, at a point you're farming up in uh, northwest Iowa and curious as to the progression from there to lead you into political office, because ultimately you decided to run for Secretary of Agriculture for the state of Iowa. Curious, what was that thought process you know, that would have been, I ran in, I announced in 2005, and it was for the election of 2006, so uh, uh, so it's probably even hard for me to remember now. <laughs> I've had several versions of my life since, but sure. But I really do think that there, there was a sense that this was a really important role. Secretary of Ag in Iowa, considering what Iowa means to agriculture, the significance of agriculture within the state, I thought it was worthwhile. It probably relates back a little bit to the sense that government roles were important, as well as I would say, I I was not fearful of running for office. I've been around a lot of people who had, uh, sometimes successful, sometimes not. But either way, it can be a really interesting, good experience. And and I finished up a a master's in business administration, just doing it from home. Two and a half years worth of Saturdays, and I'm an Iowa State guy, and I, I missed a lot of Iowa State football games during that, <laughs> but it was a really enjoyable process, and as I thought about what's next, I, I still wanted to farm, but I was looking for something in addition to farming. It just seemed to kind of bubble up. It was the right time to think about it. I did kind of a finish up of that MBA looking at what's it take run for office uh, as Secretary of Ag in Iowa. What are those issues? How much how much money does it take? Who actually gives money to somebody <laughs> running for right. office? And so I did, I actually created like a 30-page paper for myself of what that looked like. And I, I guess in the process convinced myself uh, that I should think about doing that. And it was a great process for me. And, and running for office was, was a a really, actually, very rewarding process. My thought was, win or lose, you get to know a lot more about the state. You get to know a lot more about the people who matter in agriculture and politics in the state. And you'll know those people if if you handle yourself right in a positive way forever, whether you get elected or not. Uh, and I barely got elected. <laughs> barely got elected. Two uh, percent out of out of uh, all of the million voters in Iowa. So 20,000 votes sounds like a lot of margin. It's not out of a million, but it was a great process. And then actually way better than that process was actually being Secretary of Ag uh, and getting around. And and once elected, I 
do, you know, it's not hard to copy people who are successful. Uh, Senator Grassley's of the world and the Governor Branstead's of the world that travel to all 99 counties every year, you know. A secretary of ag that lives in Iowa ought to be able to do that too. Uh, Plenty of places, plenty of ag in every county. And so I did that for the 11 years I was secretary. And it just caused me to appreciate agriculture in Iowa, just like I've had friends in other states that say they got to know their state's agriculture so much better and got to know people all over the state so much better in their roles as secretary, director, or commissioner of ag in their state. It was a great experience, but it started with having the guts or the foolishness to run for run for political office. It was certainly very rewarding uh, when it worked out. So you mentioned interacting with other states because as a state uh, secretary of agriculture would also coordinate with federal government and and, right. and fellow counterparts in other states. I assume that role is different in different states. Probably here in, you know, the main part of farm country, uh, it's probably relatively similar, but you probably also interact with other states where the Secretary of Agriculture role is drastically different, I assume. You know, it really is uniquely different in every state. So in about a, in 12 states, it's elected. Uh, the balance of the states is an appointed office. Uh, the different agencies that are in the state office are all different. Um, so mm-hmm. so we have weights and measures here. So we, we had folks that went out and checked gas pumps and scales. In some states, that's not true. In some states, they have a forestry division. We don't have a forestry division here in Iowa. That's over in the DNR, uh, a fellow state agency that's important, but but not as part of Iowa Department of Ag and Land Stewardship. In Iowa, we had a lot of soil conservation work that was done. About half the employees of the Iowa Department of Ag and Land Stewardship are conservation and water quality employees. Hmm. In some states, that's in a completely different area. And in some states, they don't have cost share programs like we did in Iowa, where you could actually have state programs to run around water quality or conservation, too. So there is a national organization called NASDA, National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, uh, that gets together uh, two or three times a year, um, and you get together with your colleagues, and you get a talk, and even where your roles are very different or your agencies are very different, you have a lot of similarities, too. And that is obviously, as time goes on, some of my best friends ever uh, are folks that were serving in other states. Uh, Actually, when I went to eventually go to to USDA, uh, we brought in several of the folks that had been previous state secretaries of ag or directors or commissioners of ag in their states because of how well they knew their states and how well they had engaged and balanced the regulatory and the advisory and the political agriculture system within their states. It gives you a certain skill, sometimes by messing up and learning and not doing that again, and sometimes because you lucked out and learned something, and and those were valuable skills for us to have when we were in the administration to have as potential employees of USGA, too. So it is a... I tend to think, um, simply because I don't know all the other roles, but it's a state secretary of ag or director or commissioner of ag is 
one of the best roles uh, in agriculture in any state out there because you get to work with ag folks that are solid earth folks, and it's not a very political job. You're not very partisan. You're working with folks whatever side of the aisle they're on. You're just trying to make things work. And sometimes you're advocating within your own state government or the federal government for your folks in your state. Uh, But you've got to know them. you got to know what they need. And so... and typically, when the state secretary of ag calls and said, hey, can I come and visit your business or your farm so I can learn more? Most people say yes. <laughs> Not all of them, I but most so. of them do. <laughs> and so you have an entree into a lot of interesting places, too. <laughs> so that was, leads into my next question. I was going to so you mentioned you were 11 years here as secretary of ag in, in Iowa. Memories, interesting things. Uh, you know, I guess let's start with the good. You know, you know, highlights that you think of during your tenure as Secretary of Ag? Probably, you know, you think around different things. I, I love getting around and visiting all kinds of places. I, I would remember one time thinking about, why am I going again on a Thursday night? You know, I'd been out four nights that <laughs> week and going to another place. I'd already been to that county, so I didn't count as a new county <laughs> in my, you know, 99 counties. And you go, and I don't actually even remember exactly the conversation, but coming home after that thinking, thank goodness I went. I had a conversation where somebody said something that tied in with other things that I'd heard, and you got to show up. You got to get out. You got to be there. And it changes your perspective on what's going on out there, whether it's the financial impact on somebody or a weather impact or something else that's going on on the markets or a question that you got that you hadn't thought of. And you think I should emphasize that a little bit more because if they care about it, then other people do too. Another piece, probably a program, a piece that we started was a nutrient reduction strategy. So we were having issues around water quality issues uh, in the state of Iowa, as well as Iowa's contribution to the Gulf of Mexico, phosphorus and nitrogen getting down to uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And some of that's coming off our farmland. Uh, Tile line waters will carry uh, nitrogen and certainly surface water typically is uh, coming off of fields with phosphorus. Very tiny amounts, but we have 23 million acres of farm ground in Iowa. Tiny amounts times 23 million (laughs) adds up. And so we were looking at ways to reduce the loss of those nutrients because that costs money for farmers, but also it impacts folks off the farm. But make sure that it's not a regulatory answer to it because there is no one regulatory answer. It's not because people are putting on too much fertilizer and therefore we need to change and say what everybody's fertilizer rate ought to be. Uh, Everybody's system's different. So let's encourage us to use cover crops if that works for a farmer or, or come up with better nitrogen rates and testing and figuring out what that is. How do we look at reducing erosion that could be coming off of a field and put buffers in or now we use edge of field practices called uh, saturated buffers or bioreactors to capture that nitrogen coming through tile line coming off a field. How do we encourage those voluntary things and in fact provide some more state money for that and more education and engage the farm groups and others. And that's been very consequential. Now the state contributes in excess of $25 million. I think it's maybe in excess of $30 million a year towards those water quality practices. They've stayed voluntary, but we've seen huge adoptions. 
Mike Nag, our current secretary of ag, is very engaged. They have batch and builds where they're being much more efficient in the way that those can get on the ground for less expense. Other states have adopted this too. They have nutrient reduction strategies or their version in their states. They're all different. They need to have their own version. Sure. Uh, we work together as states to come up with some of those, but that was a really great process that it can be proud of. Lots of people came together. Iowa State University, Wendy Winterstein was dean at the time, dean of agriculture, and was a huge contributor uh, in making sure that we were science-based and thoughtful in the way that it was set up. Uh, very rewarding to be a part of that process and have something that lives on is way better now than what it was at the beginning. But it all started there. So switching gears a little bit. So after 11 years serving the people of Iowa, then moved to Washington uh, to to assume a role within USDA. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, I just told you that being a secretary of ag in Iowa and in in any state is one of the best jobs. Why in the world would you leave that kind of role, you know? (laughs) First of all, I I think there's a real benefit of taking turns and having somebody else in these roles too. And I'd been here 11 years. At some point, I was going to be done. I don't know what that, when that was. And I had a chance to be able to meet Secretary Purdue. Uh, he wasn't even secretary yet. When we first sat down and had lunch, his office had called and said, Secretary, I'd like to have lunch and talk with you and talk a little bit about what his vision is for USDA. And uh, so we sat down and, and talked and you know, 45-minute lunch turns into two hours and just a great conversation. I just really liked Secretary Purdue and his vision, and he just wanted government to work and be responsive. And uh, and I love that. So I'm a farm kid, and and I had been farming, and I threw, yeah, you have a lot of people that you work for when you're secretary of ag, but I didn't even work for a governor then. You know, I had voters out there. I I didn't have a boss. (laughs) Now I was putting myself into a place where I was going to have a boss, actually. (laughs) But I was really sure that this was a boss I wanted to work for and that I would learn from and I would grow with, and uh, and it was everything that I thought it could be. And what year would this have been? uh, This would have been 2016. 17. So the election took place in 2016. Uh, President Trump was elected, appointed Secretary Purdue. I think he was actually confirmed maybe in April. We talked a little bit earlier than that as he was trying to think about what a team would look like. Sure. And so I go through a long process of getting vetted and administration wants to make sure that they're not selecting an embarrassment to come in. And so they do background checks and they check any speeches that you gave or any trips that you took that might therefore have connected you with somebody that could compromise your decision making. Um, And you go through that process, they make sure that in my case, I was going into a role that would have, could be impacted by decisions or, or could impact my own finances on the farm. So I had to separate from my farm and not be farming anymore because it was farm programs, conservation programs, and crop insurance. All things we use on my farm back home. So I had to figure out how I was going to end that. I was farming on my own at that time, so my sister and brother-in-law could farm the ground. It was pretty easy. I just park equipment, and now they're farming it, and and it was— it worked out uh, easier than some operations for some of the political appointees. And you, it was a Senate-confirmed position, so you had to go through a hearing at the 
uh, the U.S. Senate uh, in front of the Ag Committee, and then the full Senate needs to vote on it too. Uh, so it was finally announced. You know, this the old saying is you you announce things you don't want people to know about on a Friday night before a long weekend. So. <laughs> I was part of a group of about 200 people that were announced as political appointees on the Friday night before Labor Day. <laughs> I don't know if it's just somebody hadn't got their job done yet or not, or, or whether it was something to do with who they were nominating, either me or others. But then by October, you're ready for a hearing. Uh, you go through a preparation process for that, uh, including practice hearings where others... Mm will sit around and pretend they're senators asking you probably unfair questions to see if you can <laughs> handle it and you don't yell at a senator in a, sure. in a hearing room. Uh, they actually call that murder board. Uh, so they're designed to be worse than what the actual hearing is. Uh, and they were, thankfully. The oh, hearing good. wasn't as bad as the murder board was. <laughs> And got through a hearing process and, and had a committee vote. Uh, and then I got a hold placed. A single senator can place a hold on the vote for a nominee. Uh, senator Ted Cruz from Texas didn't like some of the ethanol promotion activities that our other senators were participating in. And he okay. wanted to have his time with the president telling him what was wrong with ethanol. Uh, and so he had a hold on my nomination. It ended up being until March or end of February before uh, he released that hold and then I could have a vote. So our senators were very helpful, including having a meeting with the president and, and Senator Cruz so that he would pull the hold. And, and then I started in office in March of 2018. But I would assume that was uh, a different process than anything you'd been through before in, in, in your previous role in, in Iowa. <laughs> it, it definitely was. I was not familiar with many people that had been placed, that had holds placed on their nominations before. Others were Senate confirmed, and suddenly you become part of a club, <laughs> a club you don't really want to be a part of, but a part of a club who all of a sudden you start hearing from people who you knew served, and they say, you know, you're going to be okay. I had a hold place on my nomination. I said, really? I didn't remember that. It wasn't <laughs> as important to me as it was to you. <laughs> and uh, and most of them said, hey, you know, if it's a few months and you still get a serve, it's worth it. Hang around, you know, be patient. I still had a job. I was still Secretary of Ag in Iowa, so I hadn't given up my job yet. And, and I still was doing what I liked. And, and that was all good, although We'd already rented an apartment in D.C., paying D.C. <laughs> prices for a place we didn't live in. But it came around, and it was good, and it was well worth it, and it was a great experience. So, so looking back on that, during your time as Secretary of Ag here in Iowa and then as an undersecretary with USDA, what portion of your background as a farmer do you feel helped you in that, in, in either of those roles or both of those roles? Great question. I think a lot of pieces did. Number one, you understand the challenges generally that farmers are going through. You don't know everything about farming. I, I right. don't know everything about corn farming uh, or soybean farming uh, in Iowa, let alone in other places. But certainly a Mississippi corn and soybean farmer thinks different than an Iowa one and has different challenges. And uh, But you realize the pressures that farmers are under, the challenges of making decisions, the uncertainty of markets, the impact of weather. And when we were at USDA, I hired uh, several folks 
that were our administrators for Farm Service Agency, NRCS, and, and crop insurance, and they were all farmers. And, and it wasn't because they understood all types of farming in the country, but being a farmer, I think it helps you to ask the right questions. So when I'm sitting down with a potato farmer in, in Maine and saying, you know, you're telling me you have some issue with crop insurance here. What is that? Tell me what what is bothering? And in their case, they were in the largest agricultural county east of the Mississippi, and all their farms were thrown together, even if there were operations that were 50 miles apart. They're saying, we can never trigger crop insurance loss here because we're really self-insuring our own operations. Even if we have a disaster in one place, others are doing okay. We'd love to have separate units here, like people in separate counties do in Iowa. Okay. okay, now I can understand that, and I'll talk through what would that look like? Are there separate kind of growing reasons that regions that we could split that up in, and what would that look like? And so I think being able to understand kind of the thinking process more than the actual problems that farmers had was extremely helpful. Say there's most farmers have a real pride in farming. But they've also been humbled so many times because everything, every decision we've made has been proven wrong at some point, you know. If we marketed it the wrong time, we chose the wrong maturity of, of, of corn yeah. to plant in a certain year. And, and, and so that pride and humility piece that farmers have, I think, is well earned. And farmers can understand that in each other very well. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, like you said, farming across all parts of the United States are different, but there's probably an atomic element of that that remains the same regardless of what your crop is and where you farm. Yeah. That, that probably gives them the insight that makes the difference in administering some of these programs. So then you you left USDA, be 20. 20, uh, January of 21. Yeah. So you serve at the pleasure of the president yeah. and the secretary and uh, the election had changed that. So 21st of of January, um, swearing in day, we were driving our U-Haul back to Iowa behind the pickup and coming back to Iowa, not knowing necessarily what was next. Uh, we, we had a place that that we had in, in the Des Moines area in Urbandale that we were coming back to, but not knowing what the job was going to be, not having something lined up, and ended up starting, served on a couple boards and, and did some consulting pieces. And then uh, the Agribusiness Association of Iowa is like uh, several other states have agribusiness associations. In Iowa, this one came together 30 years ago when Iowa Fertilizer and Chemical Association and Iowa Grain and Feed Association came together. So a lot of the ag retailers, it's, it's seed companies, it's manufacturing companies, it's um, large chemistry providers and fertilizer providers that are members of that, even folks that are commodity brokers and others that help these folks hedge their their crops and provide agronomy services and those kinds of things. That position came open as CEO of that association, and they were going through their search process, and and we both decided that this would make good sense. Their their search team and and myself, it just was a wonderful fit, and now it gets me back out around Iowa to be able to see yeah. uh, some of these these uh, folks that I've seen through the years and meet a whole lot of new folks. So so. 
which in, in as I recall, your offices are just a few blocks from your old office at the at the Capitol building. It's darn near across the street. <laughs> yep. So far, I guess it was the three or four years in between. I haven't turned into the wrong driveway yet, but <laughs> but it is the same commute that I used to take. So as CEO of, of the Agribusiness Association, I guess, what are your goals for the organization? Well, certainly I think in Iowa we're very fortunate to have some great grower organizations, um, you know, Iowa Corn and Soybeans and Farm Bureau, and now I'm going to get in trouble not naming them all, <laughs> turkey and poultry and yeah. pork and beef, and that do f- a phenomenal job representing producers. Um, and uh, we have a few others that are part of ag business associations like the Iowa Institute of Co-ops is a great organization. A lot of our members are members of that too. But I think we help represent, uh, along with some of those other ag business groups, that other half of agriculture. And that is advocacy within the Iowa legislature or with our congressional members, whether it's concerns about EPA issues or something that's happening in a regulatory environment in the state of Iowa around issues. I would say an awful lot of folks come to us for that kind of representation within government that they can get from an agribusiness association from Iowa, but they really stay because of the networking piece or an insight that they get for what's happening next. You know, tell me about how biologicals fit into my agronomy operation or tell me about, a, you know, the herbicide strategy that EPA is going to do. Um, what are those insights of those things that are happening next and connection to other people that I can do business with that happen within an agribusiness association of Iowa? And, you know, I hadn't thought about it till you just started listing. It's in, it's kind of an interesting cross-section of agriculture because really it's probably not as grower-focused as a commodity organization is, but it's upstream and downstream of the farmer both ways and almost completely in all ways. So as you look at, you know, the industry from that perspective, are, are there certain challenges and or opportunities that you guys are looking at from that perspective to say, okay, here's things we need to be looking out for, here's things we need to be mindful of, or I guess what's kind of the the directions you're trying to move? You know, I don't know today is necessarily different than other times, but it sure seems like a lot of things are changing fast. (laughs) I mean, whether whether it is biologicals and the technology piece, the data-centric kind of effort and us being able to process information better, but... You know, what's going to happen around measuring carbon in our products? Is somebody going to ask for that in in grain that they're buying or livestock fed with grain that are grown in Iowa? Those kinds of things. What's the government going to ask for? Um, Whether it's the Securities and Exchange Commission that thinks that, you know, we need to be reporting climate uh, impact numbers with some of our companies. And we have regulatory environment, uncertainty around pesticide regulations. We have we have legal challenges to to some of our herbicides that are being used too um, and the uncertainty around that or states that are deciding we want pigs grown a different way than what other states want. What will they say about about the way we grow corn or soybeans? Um, uh, whether it's carbon or whether it's the products we use or the processes that those products are processed under. So it feels uncertain. I'm sure all times do to all folks, but 
it certainly feels like there's a lot of pieces there. Some of it real opportunities, new technologies that give us a chance to be able to uh, be phenomenally productive. I mean, it, we were talking before we got started, right, David, about, about the yields that we saw in a year where we had so little moisture. Yeah. Um, you repeat that with the technology that we had, both seed and planting technology and harvest technology and weed control technology that we had 25 years ago, and we might have had half the crop that we had this last year. And what are those opportunities going forward as genetics get better and products get better? They're phenomenal. Uh, as long as we can have those tools to be able to use, too. And so we're a big advocate for choices, uh, having those tools that work, not having government force choices. People want to be able to sell for other benefits that grain has, whether it's carbon or whether it's water quality or whether it's, you know, somebody wants to produce blue corn and they can figure out <laughs> how much to pay and people are wanting to do that. We're, we're advocates for that too, <laughs> but, but by choice. Yeah. So. so we talked about some different things have happened over the last, you know, decade or two in, in the field of agriculture. And for purpose of this conversation, we're kind of probably staying close to home in terms of corn and soybean. Talked about genetics, talked about conservation practices. Are there other things that you can think of, you know, either in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years or things that are on the horizon that you're particularly excited about or your membership within AAI is excited about that's happened or is in the process of happening? Uh, I, I'm sure there there are lots. One, actually, just in my conversation, so I've been at agribusiness now, AI, uh, about a year and a half. And so I spent a lot of time getting out to visit some of our members and hear, you know, the things that they're spending time thinking about. And, and one of those things that kept coming up at several of the visits was about being able to use drones for applying product to crops, both cover crops, but certainly to herbicides, fungicides, other kinds of things. Mm. And it's like, can you get enough payload in that? What's yeah. that look like? And people are convinced that there's getting to be a scale there that works, that they have a certain place to work that may be different than ground-driven rigs or airplanes. And so we put on a workshop to be able to have our members help look at that. And you think all the different technologies, that's not something that I would have predicted uh, two or three or four years ago. Certainly the data management piece. We can create data from things that we could never have sensors for before. Now, how do we manage that? And how do we turn that into value? And, and, it, and it may be around tracking, you know, carbon intensity or something, but it may just be how do we better make sure that we're caring for all the pigs in that barn? How do we make sure that that we don't have to spray the weed that's not there when we're trying to kill weeds and we can spray the weeds that are, or we figure out what part of the field has got a thistle problem and let's not spray the other parts of the field that don't, or whatever those technologies are. How to keep all the plants healthy in a field, how to make sure they all come up, you know, within a few hours of each other rather than a week of each other. What are all those pieces? And I think there's a lot of technologies 
that require working together, but offer some real opportunities too. But as you said, things that probably were at the very least pie in the sky and maybe not even on the radar a decade ago, drone technology being a great example that that I can remember conversations not that long ago that that seemed like it was uh, a little Mm far-fetched. And now the things that we do, we had an episode, I don't know, two or three episodes ago, a gentleman from our research team talking about aerial phenotyping, being able to check maturity of crop and, and a lot of things being done with, you know, crop maturity and physiology and things like that. So, yeah, that's an interesting aspect that I don't think anybody probably saw coming. And then, like you said, this, uh, you know, spray-on-demand type technology mm-hmm. really is neat because it holds the potential to really, again, one of those rare win-wins, right? From an environmental right. standpoint, a win. From the grower standpoint, a win. Don't spray what you don't need to spray. It seems like there's some promising things on the horizon there. It sure does. It sure does. Yeah. From your experience, you know, and again, I'm asking the question broadly as as a farmer, as uh, someone who served in government, you know, we talked at times about young people getting involved in, in agriculture, and I'd say directly in ag- production agriculture. How do you advise young people who are are wanting to get involved in production agriculture and, and, and make a go of it? Well, it's it's a challenge certainly to get involved in production agriculture if you don't have some help to do that yeah. because it's a very capital intensive business and it takes land to be able to do it or livestock to be able to do it and an awful lot of folks that are able to do it have somebody they're connected with either somebody that's a family member or 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 somebody that's got them under their wing I've Talked to a friend the other day who's who's uh, retiring from farming and getting somebody unrelated started on their farm. And they said, you know what, we're taking less than we could have got for renting that farm to somebody else. But we really feel good about getting somebody who's going to be a great farmer involved on the farm. And so certainly encourage people that are thinking about that to think about those kinds of options because there are some young people that don't have other ways in. And if you're able to offer that, that's great. I just tell folks ag is a a wonderful place to invest your life. Uh, There are great people in agriculture. There's a town in Iowa that I think has a sign along the side of it telling us the number of people and says there's a few old grumps here in town too. There's a few of those, (laughs) but very few of those in agriculture. There are really great people. And I'd say on the the farming side, on the agribusiness side, this is a great business to spend your life in. It's as interesting as it's ever been. The opportunities to be able to do new and different things, the technologies that are coming to be able to address those. Yes, we're going to have challenges making sure that we can do them and there's not uncertainty about the either legal aspects, uh, regulatory side or lawsuits or other kinds of things. But it's because we're getting new technologies that will let us do it even better. And you get to produce food and things that people want and need every day. So I tell folks that aren't related to agriculture at all, think about it, look at ways. We have an awful lot of folks that start an agribusiness and then find their way into growing, you know, into a farmer themselves. Uh, Sometimes they spend a few years in agribusiness, get some health insurance and some experience and make a connection and then are able to actually even go back to farming as their primary career if they want to. However it works, get involved in agriculture because there's great opportunities and we need more people (laughs) uh, to 
to certainly add to the people that we have right now and replace a few folks that, that decide that they've spent their long enough doing it, too. So. <laughs> and you brought up a good point because I think if you look at FFA as an organization, some of their fastest growth is occurring in what I would call non-traditional ag. Um, had an opportunity to visit with someone who's in charge of FFA for Des Moines Public School District mm-hmm. here in the state of Iowa. And that's obviously a different path, but it's a great way to get non ag-oriented folks involved in ag. And like you said, whether you're, you know, farming or whether you're in agribusiness, there's lots of opportunities to do a lot of neat and interesting things. You, you mentioned about traveling around the state. You know, with that, I assume a love of rural communities, rural Iowa. Curious, you know, what are ways that we can enhance kind of rural development in the state of Iowa and around the country, really? I think it's really important. We we are so darn efficient at what we're doing. It doesn't take as many people as it used to <laughs> in many of our rural communities to farm the land or to run the grain elevator or do some of the things that we used to do in those areas that filled our small communities with people. Now, we still have a lot of great, successful livestock-oriented areas where we're seeing growth in people, but I think we need to get people out and provide some of those experiences that people can only get from rural areas. When I was... When when Cindy and I were in Washington, D.C., and I was working at USGA, we would hop in the pickup nearly every weekend and not drive into the city, but drive away from the city <laughs> uh, to get to rural areas. And we traveled all around the Northeast. So from, you know, to Delmarva and to uh, Shenandoah Valley and to Lancaster County in Pennsylvania and all over. And I come home every weekend with pictures of barns and pictures <laughs> of beautiful farms and use those, especially when Zoom started, right? Use those as background for Zoom and start a conversation of where'd you see that barn? Yeah, that was Western Pennsylvania or Western New York or up in Vermont. Our rural areas are so beautiful and so engaging. And for people that take a little bit of time and say, don't just drive between two of your favorite cities, look at what you're driving past. And I'd say the we as farmers are blessed with that. I mean, between Cedar Rapids and Des Moines, it's about two hours. And for us, it's an awful lot of farmsteads to see if a combine's sitting out getting ready in <laughs> August or not, or a planter is, you can see the planter tracks out in that field or not. And to a lot of people, it's just time on the road. And if we can teach them, help them understand the really interesting things that they get to see, maybe they'll spend some more time. And when they do that, maybe they'll stop at the cafe in town and maybe they'll do a little business in one of our rural retail shops that are out there or find some other things that can help some of those rural communities keep some additional people uh, in those rural communities too. And that's a great concept because, I, you know, again, I had a bunch of your membership within the Agribusiness Association they are placed in these communities, whether it be a retailer or a co-op or a, even a service location for right. any of the input suppliers. So um, they are in some ways life and blood of some of these rural communities and understanding probably helps lift those communities up, right? And I think probably we underappreciate what it takes to keep communities going, right? You need school board members and you need people that are on boards and in churches and on city councils and, and helping be volunteer 4-H leaders and others. In many cases, we need as many as we used to, but we have less people out there. And so more people are doing more things. And certainly an awful lot of our members are, a lot of the farmers are out there doing that. And those are the kinds of things that keep communities going as they're thinking, 
thinking about, you know, can we build a trail here in an abandoned railroad? Can we, what do we do to keep our hospital efficient in, in operating here? Because we want to be able to have that for folks that are in immediate need and and we want future families to come here because we have some of those services that they get appreciated in some of the larger areas. Well, so as we're winding down here, just wondering about what would you tell your 25-year-old self looking back on if you had the opportunity to to share a moment with your younger self what what would that message look like uh, it's a great question um, and I probably wouldn't have listened even if I <laughs> some old guy was even if he had my same name was yep. telling me but first of all life takes really interesting twists and turns I would have never thought that I'd be sitting here with you today that I would have been at USDA for a bit or Secretary of Ag or president of Iowa or National Corn Growers Association. i just very happy farming and maybe being involved in the local Farm Bureau and other things. So be open to those twists and turns. I'd also say one of the most rewarding things for me over life is you get to meet people at every one of those different roles and remember them, stay connected. Uh, it can be a good thing for business or certainly sure. for happen to run for office. It's a good thing to know a bunch of people, those kinds of things. So it it can be a important thing financially for your business or for other things that you want, but it's one of the most important things. It's very rewarding. And to be able to run into folks now, I actually just spoke to a class up at Iowa State earlier this week that was led by a guy who I was on the dorm floor with <laughs> back in uh, uh, back in 1977. And we didn't see each other for 25 years. And now it's great fun to, to see each other mm-hmm. and talk about our different experiences and catch up. And I told that class that you know, there are people sitting in that classroom that you may not be paying attention to, that you may be working with, doing something interesting uh, with 30 years from now that none of us even think is a job. <laughs> <laughs> and and it will be very rewarding. And so networking and engaging and staying connected with people, people are really the thing that gives you great pleasure as life goes on. And so take care of those relationships too. It can be a good thing for business, but it really is a good thing personally. And so all my different roles, I've had chances to meet a lot of good folks and I've had some chance to be able to stay in touch with a lot of those folks too. Great. Well, Secretary Northy, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Stein Seacast today and really appreciate your uh, years of service to all of us in agriculture and being an advocate for agriculture here in the United States and uh, in the ag industry. Really appreciate it. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. Well, that's our time for today. I want to thank our guests and our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Stein Seacast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit steinseed.com. Stein has yield.